Oh boy, what a question. Do you ask that of everybody? Jeepers creepers. This is the Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Marv Newland didn't plan to be an animator, but after a career that spans over half a century, more than 20 films, and some of the industry's most notable prizes, it's safe to say that he's done all right for himself, especially when one considers that the film that launched his animation career almost didn't happen. From his first project, Bambi Meets Godzilla, to last year's Catalog of Flaws, Marv's films blend his style, sensibility, and sense of humor into a unique and instantly recognizable package. We recently spoke with Marv about creativity, developing your style, and what keeps him inspired to continue making films. This is my conversation with Marv Newland. Yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to start by finding out a little bit about young Marv. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in LA? Um, not in Los Angeles. Oh gosh, I, I you know what? Now I've been I've been a citizen for so long. I'm not afraid to talk about this anymore. I, I used to be nervous that I that there would be a prejudice because you can be from Hungary, Indonesia, you know Tonga, but don't be from the USA because that you know what the heck are you doing here? You're a spy or whatever the heck is going on. But I was born in California, in the uh, Oakland, California, same as uh, Clint Eastwood. And um, uh, I lived there, that area of the state for a, a while until I was about eight years old, then uh, down to the desert, uh, Barstow, for another eight years, back up to Silicon Valley, San Jose area, and graduated high school and went to uh, Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles for four years and was out and within a year i had given up on the usa and uh, driven to canada <laughs> there you go so, so can we talk a little bit about your time in in, in school because I, if i read correctly did you go to school for animation or did you go to school just for film in general i went to school um how I got in, I have no idea. They must have been desperate. But I um, liked making art. I made, I drew cartoons. I painted. I designed posters. I did a lot of different things. Undisciplined young person. And they accepted me at the, at the art center. And I went in, and I didn't know what major to take. I, I didn't. I didn't want to be a fashion artist. I didn't want to be a. Um, an architect. I didn't want to be an automobile designer. I didn't want to be this, that, that. And I saw this thing called advertising design. And I thought, well, it's design. And, and the advertising design class lets you take a whole bunch of different things, fashion drawing, life drawing, perspective, lettering, um, uh, marketing uh, theory, blah, 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 all these different things. So I thought I took that. And, and as a result, I got a pretty well-rounded well um, uh, set of uh, teachings in many different departments. And that was great because then, you know, you can kind of figure out what, what interests you uh, 
as a, a slightly more mature human being. While I was there, the school offered a, a motion picture making class. And um, <clears throat> I just thought, oh boy, this is, this is great. I mean, I, I love movies. I love making things move. Why not do this? So I went uh, into that class uh, thinking that, and made some live action movies. And um, then they started up an animation class. But by then I was already enrolled in the film class and I did not take the animation class. So I, I just continued in the film class and uh, ended up making a grad movie animated <clears throat> because weather uh, prevented me from shooting the final scenes of the live action movie that I was making. So it was almost out of necessity that you fell back on animation. I like the word desperation more than necessity, but yes. <laughs> Before we move on a little bit and talk about that graduation film, did you was art something that you always wanted to do even as a kid? Did you always know that you wanted to do something in the arts? Yes, absolutely. Um, I yeah, I did. I designed like uh, political posters for fellow students running for class office and so on. Uh, to the extent that one year I designed my posters for for my uh, political uh, career and my opponent's posters, just because I like to make pictures and drawings and create stuff. I, I sort of thought that the whole political end of it was a laugh anyway. So. I, I just liked making the art, and I, I did uh, comics, cartoon comics, uh, basically to get attention, of course, like any other artist. And then I published a four-page little comic book uh, before I was out of uh, high school. And that was fun. And well, and, and what? But what time was that? Is that? I'm assuming that that was before sort of zines and indie comics kind of became a, a popular thing, right? Yes, that was in the mid-1960s. So you were way, way ahead of the curve on that. Um, not as far as content, but, uh, but I did, you know, self-publish. I mean, it was, it's a laughable. It isn't like a Zap comic or something like that. It's just a, like a, a eight and a half by 11 page printed on both sides, folded in half. But it was something that you created. That's amazing. Well, it went over well, yes. <laughs> Were your parents always supportive of your art as well? Um, well, they they didn't try to, they did not prevent me from going to art school. I think they were surprised that I was accepted. Um, the, uh, the application and so on uh, process uh, was difficult for me. And I think they uh, noticed that and figured, well, you know, let him try, you know, let, let's not discourage him. And then he can always uh, uh, stay here in town and become a history teacher or something. You know? <laughs> always. Um, I'm curious. Okay, so let's, let's move and let's jump back to, you know, college and you, you do your graduation film. Can we talk about that graduation film? Cause that kind of landed you on the map. I don't know. Was did you think that you were going to get the reaction that you were going to get once when you when you put your head to do uh, Bambi versus Godzilla? 
Well, Marina, I'll say this right out. I mean, I was only concerned that I, and going back to my parents who, you know, helped finance me and so on, uh, to go to this expensive private school. Um, and uh, I had to graduate. I could not let them down. I, I, I whatever <clears throat> I could throw together, whatever slapdash uh, piece of motion picture uh, I could put together uh, at the last minute, uh, I had to do it uh, to get a, grad, a grade in the class. Therefore, uh, uh, I would be eligible to graduate. And so that was all my attention was just make this thing. You know, I had no idea that it would have a life beyond uh, a screening in the classroom uh, on the last day of school. And that would be it. So how did it sort of develop this life on its own? So you, you make this film that's your grad film. How does it kind of get out beyond that screening in your classroom? Um, at the end of school year, the last year I was at school, I began <clears throat> doing freelance illustration. And this is in Los Angeles. And one of the companies that was uh, that I was working with quite a bit was um, Chiat Day. And they, had, they were an upstart advertising agency at that time. <clears throat> and a fellow student of mine became an art director there, and he commissioned a few little spot illustrations, black and white spot illustrations. And I did them. It was easy to do. I gave him about 11 drawings, and then he selected one, and then they paid me $100. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. I'm going to keep doing this. This is the greatest. And so I worked for them, and I went around town with a portfolio of drawings. You know, I had published work, so I was legitimate. And I got other jobs and so on. And <clears throat> this fellow, uh, uh, Jerry Box, who was the art director at Chiat Day, one of the art directors, he knew that I'd made this animated movie. And there was a man named John Amos working at Chiat Day as a writer. And he was also a writer and producer, I guess, of a, local Los Angeles television show called Loman and Barkley. And Jerry uh, said, well, John saw your movie. He likes it. And he, he wants to know if they could show it on the Loman and Barkley show. And I said, this is a stupid 16 millimeter poorly made animated movie. And they want to put it on television. And Jerry said, well, don't worry. It's local television. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. <clears throat> Will they pay me? And Jerry said, oh, well, they'll probably, maybe they'll give you 50 bucks or something. I said, oh, okay, sure. And uh, away it went. And um, a few days later at the school, the, this is way before cell phones. This is before any kind of uh, computers or any kind of electronic communication. If people wanted to reach you, they could call you at the school. And the school would pin a little note on the bulletin board and you could go up there and take the notes down and go to a payphone and return calls and so on. And um, a couple of days after this Loman and Barkley broadcast of uh, Bammy Meets Godzilla, the, there were a whole bunch of notes on the board for me. And I didn't open, I, I just looked at them a little bit. And, you know, it was 
Marv, call NBC. Marv, call the Dinah Show. Marv, call uh, the Tonight Show. Blah 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 blah. And I lived in a big house uh, with five other students who were practical jokers, and I knew that they put those notes up there, and I wasn't going to fall into their trap. So I just left them there for a week or maybe more. And then I said, "Hey, you guys, quit putting those notes up on the." Board, I know it's you, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, no, it isn't us. We did, we're not putting them up there. And so I started returning calls to all these uh, television outlets, some of them national, uh, and they wanted the movie. And so without lifting a finger, this movie just sort of took off by itself and was on television all over the, mainly the USA, I guess, at that time. And... Um, that's sort of the launch of the movie, uh, completely by mistake. Uh, and, uh, some other things happened related to the movie, uh, uh, people asking me to work on various tele animated TV shows, even though I knew nothing about animation and so on and so forth. So, but by that time I had already seen two or three screenings of National Film Board of Canada animated movies, which were screened at the Los Angeles County Art Museum. And that was all I could think about was, if I'm going to make movies, I want to make movies like these animation movies from Canada because they're made by humans and, and they have all kinds of topics and subject matters and they're drawn in crazy fashion. And that, that's for me. I, I want to do that. And so I began looking into uh, connecting with the National Film Board. Okay, so before we get there, let's yeah. talk a little bit about um, you're going around town with this portfolio of work, mm -hmm. and this movie is having this little life of its own. But was the intent after graduation that you were going to go into advertising? Was that kind of the career trajectory? And then the animation kind of, you know, took over? Um, no, I didn't want to be in advertising. Uh, many of my classmates went into it and became art directors and so on. And uh, to their credit, very few of them hired me to do freelance work for them so that they understood, you know, who, who they'd have to be working with. Um, I liked doing freelance illustration, cartoons and so on. And um, what happened? Some things happened. Uh, <clears throat> I left Los Angeles on a trip up to Berkeley, and uh, when I was there, I saw my first Zap comics, and that sort of turned things all around. So really, the film, I didn't, except for saying, okay, well, I made an animated movie, and I like this National Film Board of Canada animation, um, that's about as far as it went. I wasn't trying to get money to make another movie. I wasn't promoting animation for myself. Um, I went around Los Angeles doing freelance animation. Uh, freelance, sorry, illustration. And then eventually, uh, people, st I tried to get work in the live action <clears throat> motion picture business and uh, was directed to uh, an animation studio. And so you're so you 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 start working at an animation studio. What then 
leads you to Toronto was part of the charm, the fact that, you know, perhaps this would be your in ways to the National Film Board? Or what was it something else that kind of led you north? Um, it's it's kind of a stumbling, bumbling trail. Um, uh, the things I was pursuing, I wasn't getting. But other things kept, like I was trying to get work in the in the live action business, and I, uh, a man named John Yuri had a company, and I sent. I tried to get to see him, and the secretary said you had to you have to send in a portfolio, and then he may may see you, and I, that bugged me. So I did a comic of of me trying to get to see him, and I just thought, well, this will teach him a lesson. And then the secretary called me back and said, Mr. Yuri wishes to see you. And so I went and John Yuri said, you don't want to work in live action. Here's the name of this person, Frank Terry at Spum Buggy Works. Go see him. Tell him I sent you. And so I went to that Spum Buggy Works and Frank Terry hired me to make posters and to do a little bit of design for animated TV commercials. And so I worked there for a year and a half making uh, animation. And basically that's where I learned how to animate and what, how, to, how, what the, you know, what a camera pan was and uh, how to set up scenes and so on. Bammy meets Godzilla. It's just a one character on a stage and then another character arrives. It's easy as pie, but uh, you know, anyone could do it. But when I finally started working in the professional business, that's when my education uh, began. And that's when my fascination with making real animation also began. So while that was going on, um, I was involved with a woman who's, who was uh, ex-Miss Blue Bomber. Uh, and we, uh, we, hitched, we got hitched in Los Angeles. And then we, she said, "Oh, we, you should come up to Canada and, and go. We should go to Winnipeg, to my where I grew up, and so on, and and meet meet my relatives." So we did that via uh, Vancouver, um, where there's another great Bammy meets Godzilla story uh, to be told. And then we went to Winnipeg, and then I, uh, you know, started to get a feel for what life in Canada was all about, and I liked it. And we immediately made plans to uh, move uh, to, unfortunately, to Toronto instead of Montreal. But Montreal was where the film was located. And Toronto was basically where TV commercials were being made. And so that's how you ended up in Toronto. For You were only there for a couple of years, though, before you made your trek back west, right? That's right. Yep, I was there from uh, 1970 until... Uh, 1972. So what brought you then to Vancouver, to the West Coast? The ocean. Um, uh, <clears throat> I like the West. I like the ocean. I like being near water, not a lake. Um, and there, there was, uh, there were, uh, relationship difficulties that helped send me away, packing away. Um, so uh, basically, I started moving further away from the National Film Board, which was the main reason I was in Toronto. Mm -hmm. I literally worked 
uh, freelance at a company called Film Design Limited uh, in Toronto, which was run by Jim Mackay. And Jim was one of the three original Scotsmen that uh, founded the uh, English animation department of the NFB. He, uh, he and uh, George uh, Dunning and uh, Norman McLaren were the three <clears throat> fellows. And Jim worked on films at the film board for a while, and then he just took off and came to Toronto and opened up a little uh, studio uh, and hired people from, you know, to help make uh, ETV and, uh, and educational television and Sesame Street segments and, and low-budget commercials and things like that. So, so you end up in, it's so close yet so far away, right? Yes. Well, as I, as I speak, the more I sit, tell this story, the, the more shy and ignorant I feel. I mean, I didn't, didn't pursue anything correctly, but I kept falling into, in Toronto, I was busy all the time, either doing illustrations or animation freelance. Um, I produced my first uh, animation uh, production, and it was all basically out of necessity. I, I had to do it to make a living and to uh, stay afloat and so on. But I was also learning about uh, the craft and the making of the movies and, and that all at the same time. Meanwhile, brushing shoulders with with uh, people who represented the, the very foundation of the dream that, that brought me to, to uh, Toronto. It should have been, once again, it should have been Montreal. <laughs> so, so, you know, when, when, when you had to make the decision to move, why, why didn't you opt for Montreal? Not that we're not grateful you ended up in Vancouver, but I'm curious why you didn't go the other way, closer to the National Film Board rather than, than West. Once again, it's the ocean. and, mm. and Well, at, when I came out to Vancouver, I was, I, I was escaping Toronto. Uh, and going I don't know where. But when I spent time in Vancouver, actually in, I lived in a little house that belonged to a friend of mine and uh, right at the, uh, near the Capilano River Bridge uh, in a piece of parkland owned by the city of West Vancouver. <clears throat> and it was idyllic. I mean, we lived near a, a running stream, uh, also near a uh, the end of the Lionsgate Bridge, but, uh, you know, it was great. And uh, I was getting all kinds of illustration work. I was also uh, getting animation work uh, for companies uh, outside of, inside and outside of Canada. Um, so occasionally I'd have to fly to Los Angeles or Chicago or someplace to work on a TV commercial. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of that started... I forgot all about this. When I was in Toronto, I also worked, uh, not only did I work for companies in Toronto like Film Design Limited and Sonera, but I would fly to, law, to New York and work for Foss Cine, uh, which is a company making TV commercials, but their specialty was making TV commercials <clears throat> that were designed by well-known illustrators. And so I became one of the even though I wasn't that well known, I became one of the illustrators because I had a portfolio of 
work that they could show to people. And they, some people said, oh, well, that, we want to work with this guy, whoever he is. And so I designed a couple of commercials uh, using my own characters and so on. And uh, then I also brushed shoulders with a lot of uh, my illustration uh, heroes when I was there. So you're in Vancouver, you're, you're working steadily, you're doing commercial work, you're doing animation work. But in, in this entire process and time, even going back to your time in Toronto, were you creating for yourself as well? Or were you creating simply for, for work, for paying bills? I was, I was paying bills um, entirely. Uh, it's just a, a matter of being ignorant to how things operated. I didn't know about the grant uh, programs. I didn't, I didn't know that there was an NFB office in Vancouver until after I was there for <clears throat> at least a year, maybe more. Um, I was busy. I was, I was uh, going here and there working on things. I, I literally <clears throat> was uh, in 73, uh, having only been in Vancouver for less than a year, I was on going to uh, Holland and working on a, a Barba Papa TV show uh, uh, taking storybooks and uh, creating two-minute-long little sequences of storyboard sequences. So um, I was not. I was. I was going everywhere but Montreal, and going everywhere but into a film board office with an idea for a motion picture. I was just doing everything wrong. <laughs> Okay, so you're doing all of this work. You're keeping super busy. What prompts you to start International Rocket Ship? Well, I didn't want. To, I didn't like flying around all over the place and never mm -hmm. being in one place for, not not being in this beautiful uh, city of Vancouver, and being around people you know who are my friends. You know, my best friend Rick Staley lived uh, in Vancouver, and I like being. Uh, with him and his uh, pals, and um, I had a community. I, I developed a, a whole a whole community of friends in Vancouver, and I was always waving them goodbye and coming back a month later and uh, or more. And and uh, so I decided the way to to get around this is to try to lure the work to Vancouver instead of going to the work, try, try to bring it to Vancouver. Because by then I, <clears throat> I knew people who could, you know, help me out, people who could uh, design, people who could uh, do layouts and do animation. I, by that time, had met, uh, I, basically I'd met a person who worked at, at this uh, animation studio in Vancouver that were doing work for the USA, uh, at KVOS, uh, Bellingham Channel 12's satellite office and studio in Vancouver. And they had an animation camera there. And I began to, you know, become a little more savvy about what was going on. And one of the freelance camera people at KVOS also worked at the National Film Board. And so he said, oh, you should come by the film board. And that's how I discovered the existence of the office there and uh, that's when the doors really open but at the same time i <clears throat> wanted to make a stab at 
setting up my own little studio and uh, luring work, commercial work, uh, which was very, uh, you know, you, you could, if you churned out the commercial uh, at a nice, uh, you know, something of a profit, you could put that away and, and use it to make your own movies and be your own boss and be your own producer so on. So that, that uh, came across my mind. And so when did you start to think about um, starting to create for yourself and not just do commercial work? When did that idea kind of start to develop and, and why? Well, I, I always wanted to do it. I, I wanted to make my own movies, my own little short movies. But I, th- I thought the only way I could do it is with the support of an organization like the Film Board. <clears throat> but it turns out that by keeping things thumb on the budgets and uh, so on and knowing all these different people who, who, who were willing to work with me and so on, if I could come up with a, an idea for a movie, um, the, the, um, what do you call it? The environment for making an animated movie on your own, uh, started to become clearer to me. I also met Al Sens and Al lived in Vancouver, and Al had made more animated short movies than almost anybody on earth while living in Vancouver. And he would sometimes go to Montreal and present his ideas to the film board, and then he'd either work through their office or he would work directly with the film board office in uh, Vancouver. So meeting Al, who also had his own camera service where we made did our commercial work, that was that was also another little door opening because Al says to me, uh, Marv, if you ever make your own movies, we can give you a special rate at the camera. You know, we'll give you uh, a half, a fifty percent of the what you usually pay for camera time, and if you if you promise that it's a you know a personal film, so that that was a big deal. Um. The other thing that happened was the Canadian government had a, uh, I should know what this is called, but I can't remember because it was way back in the, like seven, 1979, but they had a investment program where if, if investors in Canadian made motion pictures would receive a 110% tax write-off. And I can't remember what that plan was called. Maybe you you know about it, Marina. It's I wish I could ago. say I did, but I don't. <laughs> well, it was great because it launched a whole bunch of live action features, but it launched my first uh, animated short film made made entirely in Vancouver. And so it was a combination of Allison's willing to you know give me a discount rate on camera time, mm-hmm. and. Um, and this a woman named Ann Garber, who organized uh, uh, investors, and uh, so I had, I think I had three investors, and they were willing to give me money so that they could get their tax write-offs, and um, they they were willing to give me enough money that I could justify starting this movie. And that movie was Sing Beast Sing, and it's nine minutes long, fully animated. 
with music and camera movement and so on. <laughs> and that was really, uh, that was in 79. Uh, we were producing it in 1980. It was released. And that was <clears throat> my first, what I think is my first real animated movie. That's very cool. So, okay, how, I, I'm curious what I want to ask you about inspiration in general a little bit mm. later, but I, I first want to touch on Anna Jam because it's kind of one of the big thing, one of the other big things that you're known for. You're known for so many things at this point, <laughs> but there's a couple of oh, sort of I'm like. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> oh, I think so. And, but there are these kind of like extra bright spots in your career and Anna Jam kind of feels like one of them. And I wanted to sort of, dive into a little bit of that for people that might not know the history of Anna Jam. Where did the concept for that come from? Because it, it's, it's, it's now it's not seen as something that's like, it, it's not uncommon to see a film made like this. Uh, we, you know, you have some stories that, you know, maybe don't necessarily tie together, but that are packaged together in a project. But now it seems very common. You see it all the time, especially in horror, but it's not something that was particularly popular in the 80s but here you are making one and animated to boot so i i want to kind of get get some details on you know where did this idea come from and i can't even start to imagine what it was like to make this at a time when digital wasn't really a thing at all yes that's correct um sing be sing uh, was sent to festivals. I, I didn't even know festivals existed. I, I didn't know anything. I was, I was so raw. But <clears throat> I had met uh, through teaching at the Vancouver School of Art, uh, Paul Dreesen. And I, he was the guy who made animated short movies that I liked a lot. And he made them with the film board in Montreal. And I found out that the Vancouver art school budget would allow me to bring in a visiting artist. So I brought him to Vancouver from Montreal and he told me about uh, film festivals and all of these things. And he basically helped me get Sing Be Sing entered into various festivals. And um, so the picture uh, won prizes in Chicago, in San Francisco, in um, <clears throat> where else? In uh, uh, oh, in Bell- Bellevue, uh, Washington, and, and did well in other festivals. But what really happened that was great was it won a jury prize at the Annecy Festival in France, and and I went to France, and Paul was there, and we traveled together. He lived in Holland. Uh, at that time, and we traveled from Holland to France and then back from France to Holland, and we went by vehicle, and so we had a lot of time to talk and so on. And then he said, well, now you have, you can take this prize that you have, this prize from Annecy, and, and now and you have a couple other prizes, and you can get a Canada Council grant to make a new movie. So what, what do you think you'll do? And I said, well, gee, I don't have anything in mind. Uh, no story, but I've always been fascinated by the Dada uh, game of the exquisite cadavers, where all these drunk dadas would sit around in some cafe and <clears throat> make a little drawing on a piece of paper, fold it back, hand it to another artist 
with, and then they would make some drawing and then fold it back and hand it to another artist and they would make some drawing. And then after everybody made their contribution, you'd unfold this piece of paper and you'd see this entire drawing made by three to six different artists who didn't know what came before or came after their own contribution to the drawing. And so it was total, um, it was data, but at the same time, it's uh, unconscious. um, uh, The collective unconscious that, which I think is a very important thing. It's like things happen in the world all at the same time in different places and things happen in one place with five or six artists all making one drawing that seems to make no sense whatsoever, but is hooked together by their collective unconscious. And I was fascinated by that. And I said, well, Paul, I, th- I think I'd like to make a movie like that. So he said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do a piece of it. So I thought, well, okay, I've got a prize. I can put Paul's name on the grant application. He's famous. And maybe I'll get some money. And indeed, the Canada Council gave me about half the amount of money I needed to make the movie. And then I just contacted artists whose work I admired, who I didn't know, and artists whose work I admired that I did know. And basically, everyone was happy to work on the picture. And uh, so we we set it in motion. That's amazing. So um, how many artists were... In the end, how many artists were included in Andy Jam? And can you talk a little bit about the process of actually um, making, like, how, how, what did that process look like of making this film in a very um, uh, lo-fi sort of way? <laughs> okay. Um, the movie, it's, it stars one character that I designed called Fosca. Um, so Fosca existed, and I knew I wanted to have a seamless a seamless, unconscious flow of, of activity. And so the first, what I had to do is send out a drawing to the first animator that would work on the picture. And they would then animate 15 seconds and their last drawing, which had to be Fosca, full you know, full drawing of Fosca, would go to the next animator. That would be their first drawing. Then they would animate their last drawing would go to the next animator and so on until you had 22 sequences and no one knew what came before or what came after their own sequence. And then we learned about halfway into the production, if we could get an animator to figure out what they were going to do and send their last drawing ahead of, before they did all their other animation, we could speed up the production a little bit. And, and we did that. Um, we, and so this is all being done on pa- pencil on paper in Italy, in, uh, uh, Bulgaria, in, uh, Japan, in Australia, in the USA and Canada, and these packages of drawings, like 15 seconds worth of drawings, you know, hundreds of drawings would come to this little studio in Vancouver at the corner of Richard and Davies. And every one of those drawings is an original drawing. And if that package was lost, it's like 
a month of work down the drain, right, for some poor animator out in the world. But miracle of all miracles, all of the packages arrived. And um, including Guido Manuli's package. And when I handed him the drawing, I literally, I handed him a drawing at a festival somewhere in Europe. And I said, Guido, when you finish, send this via FedEx. Don't put it in the Italian post because the Italian post is horrible. And in that, at that time of period, that period of time, 1983, 84, the Canadian post office was also being in, in turmoil because of union problems and so on. And I said, between the Italian and the Canadian post offices, the, your, your package will never get to me. And as it turned out, he mailed it. And within a week, it was on my desk in Vancouver. And I just thought, how did this happen? It's a mistake. You know, it's, in, it's totally incompetent uh, behavior by both of these post offices to get something to me so quickly. Uh, but most of the other packages came by, by Federal Express. And we uh, inked them, painted them, shot them, and assembled the picture. And then uh, uh, we had uh, music, uh, custom music made in Vancouver. And uh, that music track, and I think the color of the character Fosca, held the picture together, kept it from being a complete um, mess. Uh, and as it turns out, I think it, it has a sort of rhythm to it, a life to it, and a, and a spine to it. And audiences don't get up and run out of the theater. They, they stick to it. And uh, uh, it's turned out to be a very successful picture and won a bunch of awards uh, and uh, has spawned a number of uh, other movies, Candy Jam, and there's a project at the Vancouver Film School that's based on the same uh, thing with a character I designed called Kiku. And <clears throat> I'm literally at this right now working on a little sequence for a picture that Joan Gratz in Portland, Oregon is putting together using one-minute segments from various animators all over the world. So 40 years on, the, the project still lives on. Yeah, well, if you take it from the Dottis time, it's even more than 40 years. <laughs> um, you did eventually come to work with the National Film Board, but it took a long time. It was, it, what, 2005 yeah. or six? That's when I made my first, uh, when I made Tete Tete Tete, which is... Mm-hmm. Thanks to Janet Perlman for uh, dragging me into that. But before that, we made a one-minute piece, uh, uh, a, a Canada vignette in 1978 mm. about Bill Miner, the train robber. And later on, Phil Borsos made a feature film called Gray Fox based mm-hmm. on the same character. And later on, I moved to Maine Island where Phil Borsos and his family you know, rate, grew up and had a piece of big piece of land and so on. So there's a sort of anagem connection there too. So, so can you talk a little bit about that experience with the National Film Board? What, what was it like for you? What, did it almost feel like a coming home after so many years of, of working towards that goal? I was uh, thrilled to uh, be working with them. And the, the movie I worked on was part of a, series of um, a series of 
uh, pictures about um, uh, aggression and how to, uh, well, I should know the name of the series, but I don't. But anyway, there were six pictures. Janet made one of the, or she made two of the pictures. Some other animators were involved and I made one of the sequences and they went out to schools. <clears throat> they may still be going out to schools, but just to uh, show, teach children by example, without words or without, you know, shaking the finger at them or anything that <clears throat> how to resolution basically is what the films are all about mm -hmm. um, to show people how to resolve problems and to have, you know, to negotiate their way out instead of uh, having violence be the way to attempt to solve their problems. I'm curious about speaking more generally about your work and, and, and your experiences. I'm, I'm curious about your style and how you, that you developed that style was, has your work always kind of looked the same or have you sort of developed, um, because it's very unique. Like as soon as you see one of your stills or, or something from one of your projects, it's very clear, clearly a Marv work. And I'm curious about that sort of trademark and, and how you develop that. Is it something that's just grown over the years or have you always kind of had a very similar look and style? I don't think I have a style, and you're the second person this week that's told me that I do. Um, like my friend Paul Dreesen, his stuff is immediately recognizable, and his movies through the ages, you know, it's one frame. You know, that's Paul Dreesen. Um, and <clears throat> there are other people who, uh, Don Hertzfeld's style is, immediately recognizable. Mm -hmm. Michaela Pavlatova from the Czech Republic, her stuff's pretty much, you know, right away. <clears throat> um, I guess because my work is inspired to a great extent by rubber hose animation, like the early 1920s and 1930s cartoons. I love the fact that they don't abide by where there's an elbow or knee joints. Uh, they're easy to animate. They're, um, I tried to pare down the designs, actually. There's a, a, one of the bad movies that I made called Fuv. Uh, I The character that I designed, I tried to get it down to just the absolute, um, you know, took away everything you don't need. So it has one eye, it has a round nose, it, you know, it's um, the colors are you know about the same for the whole character, so on and so forth. And in a way, that's an aim. I don't know if that that uh, infects the style or not. The characters in Tet to Tet to Tet, the film board film. I guess if you saw those characters, that's two thousand five, and you saw the character Fosca from nineteen eighty four. I don't know if. If you held up drawings from, if, if you held up Fosca and held up drawings of this three-headed character that I designed for Tete Tete Tete, if people would say, oh yeah, that's Marv's work, or even if they would say, oh yeah, that's the same artist, um, I don't know if I would. <laughs> I think I'm pretty good about recognizing people's style. So I, I don't know. Uh, 
I always think I don't have a style. I always think that's kind of detrimental to me too, but oh well, <laughs> too late. So, so you, you talk a little bit about inspiration there, and I'm curious mm. about, you know, where you find ideas for your projects. I mean, you're prolific, you're, you're always making films, you're always working on something. And I'm curious about where do you start to draw, like where do the concepts for some of your projects start from? Like, do, do you see something and just become inspired or is it a thought? And how do you start to sort of um, build a project out of whatever it is that, that that's like struck you as inspiration do you start by do you make notes do you sketch things i'm kind of curious to know about your process of creation when i work um i'm I'm always making little sketches i have sketchbooks i have files of three by five cards with drawings and words and and then just what's going on in your brain and then things just happen where you you are immediately, like in 10 seconds, a whole movie comes to your head. Um, or you hear a piece of music and you go, oh, oh, yeah, oh, that would make a good movie. Background, soundtrack, I, I could do something to that. Like Black Hula is that way. Um, uh, so there's always something stirring uh, I'm working on a movie now that's completely storyboarded all the way. And it's been around for so long that probably I will ignore much of the storyboard and design scenes around it, like cut out stuff that I drew 10 years ago and put in something else based on the fact that I don't think the stuff I drew 10 years ago uh, is as... Uh, efficient way of showing what I want to show as, as my new idea might be. Or, and I probably see movies or I see a piece of artwork somewhere and that will trigger the way to set up a scene. Or uh, I'll see something in a, a technique that somebody uses in a movie and I might say, oh, well, that would, that's a good way to start that scene or end a scene or something along those lines. So my eyes are always open. Um, I'm constant. I love vis- the visual world. I have tons of books of, full of drawings and images and so on that I've taken out of other sources, out of books, out of magazines that envelope envelopes people have sent me drawings that. But I mean, I have a I have lots of friends that make drawings and make art, and and it's always coming to me in the form in, in letters or on the computer or somewhere. So um, all kinds of places uh, for inspiration. I mean, that's, that's, I guess it just comes out of the air or, or uh, it's almost like Cupid, you know, like you're walking along, minding your own business and a, an arrow goes shooting through your, into your heart and you go, Oh, that's the movie I'm going to make. <laughs> So, yeah. So I'm curious, like the the new project that you're working on now, you mentioned that you've been kind of working on this for 10 years. How Mm -hmm. do you stay motivated 
and interested in a project that you've been working on for so long? Or do you, does your mind kind of wander and you kind of leave it for a while and then come back to it? I'm curious about that part of it as well. The, why do you put something down? Is it is sometimes, is it just like you lose interest or is there like a creative block? Well, when, when this movie's finished, the reaction might be, Hey, he, he's had a, another creative block. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know that. I don't know when I'm working on a movie if it's going to be good or bad. But it's easy to... This picture I've hung on to for longer than any others. Um, Sing Be Sing was around as an idea two years before it was made, and then it took a couple years to make it. And and Tet 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 was quick, even though it's 13 minutes long. And... That that wasn't that was that inspiration was based on <clears throat> you had to you had to address the conflict resolution uh, problem that 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 the six films in their in the group had to address. So you come up you you there you're designing for to, to, it's almost like a work uh, a work for um, a purpose as opposed to my own movies, which have no purpose whatsoever. So there your inspiration is visual. Oh, okay, this is going to be a three-headed character. And then, you know, you start drawing it, and then it comes out, and you see, oh, it's got rubber hose, arms, and legs, and uh, so on. And, oh, okay, well, this sort of looks like characters from Hooray for Sandbox Land, a movie I made back in eighty. Five, uh, but uh, is this is this my style? I don't know. This is just how it should look. And um, once in a while, I guess I steal something from somebody, but I usually try to put it in the background, or just have a, a character that comes into the scene and leaves. That's you know obviously somebody else's character, but that's joking around as opposed to being inspired. I, although the inspiration to use their character is there. Um, hard to say. <laughs> every every picture has a different story behind mm-hmm. it, as far as how it evolved. Well, how, generally speaking, how do you stay sort of motivated to keep working? What else am I going to do? <laughs> I mean, I have this beautiful studio. Um, uh, I have all kinds of ideas. I'll never get everything done that I want to do. Um, I love it. I mean, it's just, it's fun. It's, you're, you know, you get to take nothing, zero, and, and, and then make it into a, like a little world with music and movement and color and so on. I mean, I don't know how anyone could get tired of doing that. <laughs> well, it's as good of a reason to do it as anything. That's for sure. I'm curious, you know, sort of to wrap things up. Um, you've had such a, a a fascinating life and a fulfilling career. But I'm curious if 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 you were to to speak to young Marv, you know, maybe college aged Marv or high school aged Marv, what advice would you give that individual? having had the career and the knowledge that you have now? Oh, boy. What a question. Do you ask that of everybody? Oh, pretty much. <laughs> Jeepers, creepers. Golly gee. Well, you said it. I mean, I have had a... I've had... A, 
my life is 18 times better than anything I could have imagined when I was a kid, when I was young. Um, I've been invited to, you know, Brazil and uh, to South Korea, and I've sat on juries in Japan and France, and I've been invited to Dawson City and and, uh, and Finland and all these places. And they show my movies, and sometimes they give me money, and people come up and want my autograph and so on. And, you know, it's I don't know what these people are nuts. You know, like uh, uh, or maybe I'm nuts, but uh, I don't think I would be. I, if I told a young version of me anything about where that where that person's life was going to go, they wouldn't believe me. They were an obnoxious young person. They would have cracked wise and made some joke and and just wandered away. And that would be to their credit because uh, I don't know if any advice I could give to that person would be of any value to them. Uh, um, basically keep moving, just keep pursuing. That would be the only thing I'd say to them. You know, if you get down, you know, ride it out and get back up again, you know, start working. If someone doesn't like what you do, well, someone else will like it. And, uh, yeah. And that was my conversation with Marv Newland. You can find some of Marv's selected works on YouTube and at the National Film Board at nfb.ca. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.